Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and as a family, we seek to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our community. We hope you'll subscribe. Well, we're going back to our series that we started last week, and I know um, it's early. Last week I brought up the fact that I know Advent hasn't started yet, at least Advent from the traditional way that the Christian church has celebrated Advent, that uh, we are, uh, you know, the church generally celebrates Advent just the four exact weeks before Christmas, and we're weeks before that. But I, I, I... um, believe I have a good argument for this because the word Advent was actually used before Christianity. It was a, a word that was used about the expectation, about the, the time of waiting for when a king would come into an area. So people would Advent because without telecommunications, without cell phones, you didn't know when that person would arrive. You didn't know when somebody when that, that dignitary, that, that, that important person would, would show up. And so you sit around and you wait with expectation. You wait with uncertainty. And you're wondering during that time, who's this king going to be like? What's it going to what's, what's is, is today the day? Who is the nature of this king? And so today we're not trying to start Christmas too early. Don't, don't hear me do that. But what we do want to do is we want to wait with expectation. Whether you're a Christian here this morning or you're not a Christian this morning, I think we can still ask the same questions of expectation. Who is what what Christianity is about? Who is this Jesus? What's he going to bring? What's he going to look like? And what we've been doing is we've been looking at the first few lines of the book of Matthew. And these lines are a list of names. For a lot of people, we just sort of glaze over them and we move on. But the original listeners would not have done that because these uh, names here are Jesus's lineage this is Jesus's DNA people back then didn't have resumes of their of their accomplishments they used genealogies to to show who they're related to that was just as important because in a family-based culture that brought up the nature of what you were about and so each name on this genealogical list is connected to a story, and each story tells us something about who Jesus is and what he's going to do and what he's bringing. And so today we're looking at the, at the person of Ruth. And what we've said last week is in Jesus' genealogy, the fact that all ancient Near East genealogies, all Old Testament genealogies only had men in them, the fact that he put not just women but these particular women with their stories would have been considered scandalous, that everyone would have tried to hide that aunt or that uncle and and, and not really talk about that individual. Jesus puts them at the center of his story. And therefore, we will only actually understand Jesus if we understand them, if we understand Ruth. So let's see three things today. Three things. First, Ruth was an outsider. Second, she points to the ultimate outsider, and then three, that allows outsiders to be insiders. Let's, let's walk through that. Ruth was an outsider. 
she points to the ultimate outsider, but that allows outsiders to be insiders. So first, Ruth was an outsider. How do I know that? Well, if you go to the first line of the book of Ruth, we didn't put that here. We, we put lines 15 through 17. But the first line, let me read it to you. It says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And to you, that doesn't sound like a lot, but judges was actually a very specific time in Israel's history. It was a time when there was no king. And if you go to the book of Judges, what you'll see is this was a really bad time politically. There was chaos. People were killing other people. There was a lot of political turmoil because society was up in arms because who is going to lead God's people? And then we're told this wasn't just the time of, of chaos. There was famine in the land. And so you had political turmoil, you had economic turmoil, you had social turmoil, and it's in that time that we're told in the book of Ruth, there was an Israelite woman named Naomi who, with her husband and their two sons, they go and they move from Israel and go live in Moab. And now Moab was, uh, you know, this was another part in a geographical space. They were the enemy of Israel. So for them to go live there, that's a big no-no. And then what we're told in, in, in Ruth is that the two sons of Naomi and her husband, they marry Moabite women, also a big no-no in Jewish culture. And right after that happens, the unthinkable begins. Her husband dies, and then one of her sons dies, and then the other son dies. And so all of a sudden, Naomi is a widow, and her two new daughters-in-law are widows as well. And based on how economics worked back then, uh, they had no husband, which means now they had no land, they had no economic engine to make funds, they had no means of income, they're living in a foreign land, they have no social power, no way to create more children to have more economic help. And their story then is actually a story of utter chaos, Utter devastation. It's hard to read that in the first line or in the first couple of lines, but that's exactly what happens. If we were going to piece together the case for Naomi's devastation, that she was lost, that she was without hope, it would be pretty obvious. It would show up. And so she has this feeling of hopelessness. And it's, it's so apparent to her that in the end of chapter one, she changes her name to the name Mara. Mara meant bitterness because that's what she was she wasn't just sad she was bitter at god for doing this to her i don't know about you if you've ever felt that same way where you're like god why are you letting this happen she renamed herself names have defining power and she does that because she feels like a lost cause and she's so lost she knows that she is so uh, uh, desolate she goes to her daughters-in-law and say you know what you guys should stay here you should stay in Moab because, you know, if, if you leave me, you can stay with your gods, you can stay with your cultural uh, background, uh, people with your cultural value, and if you stay with your own people, you don't have to code switch, right? You know the language, you know the culture, you don't have to uh, be looked upon with suspicion. So you should stay here because Naomi was set to go back to Israel. She's like, listen, if I go back to my own people, maybe I can beg there, maybe I can uh, ask for food there. But if these women came with her, they would have been shamed. Naomi was actually from Bethlehem, but Ruth, she was not. She was a foreigner. She was a Moabite. And that meant disgrace. Because Moab wasn't just a, a geographical space. It was settled originally by the person Moab. 
And if you go to uh, Genesis, Moab was the son of Lot. And Lot, what happened with him is that after he lost his wife, he had two daughters, which is eerily similar to the two daughters-in-law here. They, bo- they don't have any way to have an economic engine. So they say, you know what? Let's get our father drunk. Let's sleep with him so then we can have children. And so it, that, what that means then is as they got him drunk and did that, in other words, Moabites are descendants of incest. And so that meant for Ruth, she wasn't just an outsider and a foreigner. She was an individual with a checkered past and a scandalous lineage. And so still, Naomi, even despite that, despite the fact she was going to leave and go, one of her daughters-in-law says, you know what, this is a good idea. I'm going to take your advice and stay here in Moab. Ruth doesn't, though. She hitches herself to Naomi. She has every single reason to leave. And she probably could have found, you know, I, I was thinking about this this week. She probably could have found somebody. If she stayed in Moab to remarry or she could have gone back to her family or somebody because of her uh, background would have, would have taken care of her. But instead, look at verse 15. In verse 15, Naomi says, hey, your sister-in-law is going back. You should too. And Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and, where, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. That is considered one of the most poetically concise statements of faith and statements of relationship, of what it means to, to, to be committed to another individual. And after saying these, this, this statement, Naomi and Ruth, they go back to Israel and they're so poor. The tradition back then, if you go back to the Levitical laws, that if you owned a field back then, you would harvest, you would pick the grains, you would pick whatever, you know, the grapes, whatever you were harvesting. If something fell to the ground, you were not legally allowed to, to pick that up. You were supposed to leave it so that the poor could come by later on and find the food on the, on the floor and eat it themselves. And Naomi, who was a little bit old and she couldn't really do it herself, she tells Ruth... Go and do that. This, this is for us. Go and pick the food off the ground so that we won't starve. And as she goes to the field, she meets a man named Boaz, we're told as a nobleman. And as she meets Boaz, Boaz warns her and says, you better watch out. You better not go into those fields because you're going to be harmed. You're a foreigner woman, outsider with a pagan background, with a checkered history. You could be easily hurt and abused and harmed. And so Boaz doesn't just warn her. He moves forward and protects her, so it doesn't, that doesn't actually happen. Which, by the way, I think it makes Ruth's statement all the more crazy, that she had the option to be in safety. She had the option to, to stay with her own people. Instead, she binds herself to this woman, which is binding herself to being an outsider, to being an immigrant who was going to be taken advantage of, who was going to live in a dangerous, perilous world. And so she had the choice between having a comfortable life or a committed life, and she chose the committed life with Naomi. And, of course, this is the place where you should say, so what? Like, why does this matter? Well, if, that, if I just showed you how she was an outsider. At LSQ, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service each week. 
It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and church leaders. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for worship on Sunday. You can find out more details on our website by visiting lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash worship. Now, let's get back to this week's episode. Second point, how she points to and paves the way for the ultimate outsider. The fact that Jesus, go back to our Matthew passage, the fact that he includes a incest-dubious, pagan, poor, foreign woman into his lineage. Why would he do that? And the answer that we said last week, and we're saying it again this week, is because he's trying to say something about his nature. He's trying to say something about the nature of Christianity, too. I've been reading this really thick book um, called Dominion by Tom Holland, uh, who is a, this is a, a British non-Christian secular individual, and he has studied all of antiquity. He's studied all of, of sort of the beginnings of Western civilization with Romans and Greeks. And he's setting out to try to study the history of Christianity. And what he found is this. As a secular British man, he loved his secular Western values. And those values are this. Gender equality, racial equality, universal human rights, We all love those things. A a, a concern for the immigrant, a concern for the outsider voice to platform uh, the the oppressed and, and the individual who isn't heard enough. But what Tom Holland found is you don't get those values. He started trying to trace where did those things come from. You don't get them from those who started Western civilization. You don't get those from the Greeks and the Romans. The people who've literally founded the West As much as he admired Greeks and Romans, they believed certain races were inferior. You can get that by reading Aristotle. They believed that women were just one rung below, above slaves. They believed that the poor should not be platformed at all, that they had no rights, and any culture that actually had concern for them were weak. So I read this literally yesterday. He wrote this. He said, the Greeks, when they captured a city licensed rape as a reward for valor. The Romans had stocked their households with young boys and girls and used them as they pleased. Every Greek and Roman took for granted that infanticide was perfectly legitimate, that that to turn the other cheek was folly and the nature had given the weak to be slaves. And so what Holland goes on and, sh- and, 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 and works through, later on in, in um, his book, he points out how Spartan men, if they couldn't live up to the Spartan code, they were killed. Which was, it was a weird kind of Darwinian, sort of strong eat the weak uh, way of living. And he t- takes a step back and goes, wait a second. Wait one minute. I value equality. I value universal human rights. I value the concern for the outsiders. But they, those values don't come from nowhere. They don't just, they didn't evolve out of nothing. And the origins don't come from the Greeks and the Romans. And what he realized was they came from Christianity. Here was a non-Christian uh, individual who had to admit that the values that, the, that Western secular society hold, they, we didn't just independently agree on these things. We didn't just, uh, you know, from, because they're reasonable, we settled on them. 
They were co-opted from the Bible, particularly from stories like Ruth. Because go back to the story of Ruth. What's going on here? She's the outsider who's made an insider. She, through Boaz, who was, and we, we read it later on in the book, his, she, Boaz is the, her kinsman redeemer. So she's brought inside through him. She is a non-Jew, non-male, non-believer, the poorest of the poor, the lowest of the low, and she ends up becoming the hero of the story. And in the eyes of Matthew, she's not put here because it's just a feel-good story. No, she's put here because Matthew is saying she's at the very heart of the story of God. And that's this. The God of the universe takes outsiders and makes them insiders. That's the story of Christianity. No other culture, no other faith does that. Not even our modern one. In fact, I would argue that the reason why there's all these spits and fits, there's a reason why there's all this uh, trouble culturally is because we have these values and morals, but we have no foundation for where we got them from. And so what's happening is we're applying them unequally, indiscriminately, against each other. But what Tom Holland shows us is we know where they came from. They come, the, the foundation is Christianity. The foundation is faith in a personal triune God who sent his son to be an outsider, to be a victim of injustice. Like, go, go, let's, let's compare. Naomi had nothing, was lost. Jesus had nothing, was lost. Naomi was from Bethlehem. Jesus was from Bethlehem. Naomi uh, was born into abject poverty. Jesus was born into abject poverty. She, he had no roof over his head. She had a scandalous background now, and guess what? Jesus was born to a teenage, out-of-wedlock, pregnant girl who was an outsider too. We'll get there in a couple weeks when we look at Mary, but you know when she sits around going, no, I swear, the pregnancy, it, it was a miracle. And people were going, mm-hmm. That was her mom. That was, sorry, that was his mom. And so over and over and over again, the, the pattern is unmistakable. God takes the stories of brokenness. God takes the stories of hopelessness. He likes to take the stories where you and I can't see how the happy ending will work itself out, and he likes to turn them on themselves. That, that's the way with how God works. He takes the weak, the outcast, and makes them the hero of the story. And therefore, when we look in the Bible, when we see God becoming weak in an outcast, when we see all the other outcasts in the Bible, what's going on there is they are pointing to the true and ultimate one. Ruth points to Christ. Ruth is pointing to God's character who does not forget the least of us. He does not forget those who feel forgotten. If you in your spaces right now feel like you're insignificant, if you are like, I don't know how my story is going to turn out into any grand story, the infinite hope that's found in Jesus through Ruth is for you. Because Jesus says, Ruth is my spiritual mother. By putting her in this list, he's saying, I'm like that. I'm the kind of God who cares for the widow, who cares for the, the orphan. I'm your kingsman redeemer. And I'm going to bring victory out of your defeat. How's that possible? 
it, one simple phrase. Jesus is the ultimate insider who becomes an outsider so that all the outsiders can finally become insiders. That's the message that Ruth points to, and I believe it's the message of Christianity, and I think it undergirds all our moral values that we have. Ruth had no business ever being remembered. If you think about it, I mean, go, go into real time. Go in, she's literally picking food off the ground. She probably didn't have the awareness, the social awareness, that this is going to be inscribed into all of history for all of humanity to look at. But she could not have seen how God was going to bring good out of her brokenness in that moment. But the fact that we're even talking to her today, that, that should give you great hope that he can take, if he can take her story and bring meaning out of it, then he can take all of, all of our stories of brokenness and bringing meaning out of it too. Broken father relationships that you have. Broken family relationships. Broken job relationships. Broken relationship relationships. Whatever those things are. Broken body relationships. He can do that. Because, and here, here's, here's the, the, the more, more important fact. Because Jesus does this in weakness, whatever you think Christianity is about, he's not calling you just to pick up your bootstraps and try harder and be good and be successful and show your resume and then God lets you in. No, the very def definition, the fact that he does it in weakness means when you and I no longer try to hide ours but actually are able to admit it when, when you know, the weak and wounded, the sick and sore, not to tarry but to come towards, towards him, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, that's what God is allowing us to do. And the question is, is will, we, will, we, will we do it? Will we come to him? Because I believe this is the only way. Ruth is not here for us to say, be like Ruth. Right? You know, stand with Naomi. No, she's, she's pointing past herself. Go back to her story. She had an option, right? In, a mo in the moment of history, she could have gone back to a comfortable life in Moab. But when she looked at Naomi, Naomi was much older than her. She said, if I don't hitch myself to her, she's going to die. She needs me. And so what she said was, I'm going to take a life of poverty. I'm going to take a life of being an outsider for her. I'm going to stay with her through thick and thin. What is that? That's her leaving her country. That's her leaving her security. That's her suffering for another. Does that sound familiar at all? Because that's what you find in Jesus and therefore, there's something about us this morning. It's not just knowing more. It's not just believing more. It's not just going to churches with more programming. Those things can all be helpful. But at the end of the day, the only way you're really going to know Jesus and taste the love of God in your life is if you experience his unconditional love and grace given to you. Tasting that and knowing that. And therefore, the only way you're going to see that is if you go take the overarching story of all of redemption and say, that's for me. He's sitting with me, for me, around me, by me. And so last point, what does this mean for us as we prepare for Advent? If Ruth was an outsider and she points to and brings through her the ultimate outsider who bring, makes us insiders, what's, let me just, to end, let me just try to give you two quick application points. The first is this. If Ruth shows us how to be a church for people who the world excludes because 
if Ruth is in Jesus' genealogy and shows us how God has a heart for the outsider, then for our purposes, we have to ask, who is that for us this morning? Right? Who is the person who is the outsider? Maybe it's the person who's pushing a political platform that you don't like. Or maybe it's a tax system that you don't like. Or maybe it's, it's a, a climate policy that, that, that you disagree with. I, I don't know. Maybe it's somebody who can't even live in our neighborhood because they can't afford to live in our neighborhood. Maybe that, that, that outsider person is somebody who can live here, but you've just ignored them or you haven't spent time with them. You haven't noticed them. This is where I think it's helpful to look at Boaz. Uh, Boaz, if you, if you go to verse 5 in our text, look what it says. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. This is actually Rahab's son. Interesting. We looked at Rahab last week. What does that mean? Well, Boaz's mother, as we learned last week, was a prostitute from Jericho who joined God's people. Think about that. He was raised by a poor foreigner, outsider mother. I have to believe that Rahab must have gone to her son and said, son, you need to care for people whose lives have been crushed by life because that's who your mother was. And I won't let you ever forget that, where you've come from, who you are. That means Boaz was trained up to this moment. He didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, today I'm going to become somebody's kingsman redeemer. He didn't, that's not how he acted. That's not, he, he did, nobody does that just one day, wakes up and says, I'm going to go do this. No, his mother had raised him into this. Rahab must have said, you know what, you need to never forget that God's love came to me even in Jericho, even as a pagan, a nobody. And so therefore, if you ever see anybody else like this, remember who you are. I love that. That Boaz, the, the nature of who Boaz was, wasn't somebody who just happened on this. But the, the fact that he saw Ruth, he had a whole cultural background, the other cultural background that told him that he needs to exclude her, he, that was operating in him, and he ignores that and says, no, I'm all in. I'm the, I am Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Let's do this. And I guess the application question for us today is where will we do that? What's, you know, what... How will we approach other people in that same way? Or as I look at Boaz, are we raising children like Rahab did as, as she raised Boaz? See, I believe Boaz was a pretty busy person. He was obviously a successful person because he had a lot, he had actually had funds and money. But he was, what was he doing in the field? He built time to engage this woman. He built time into his day to inquire, which makes me, of course, as a New Yorker, it makes me say, wait, have I built time into my life? This town, right, the idols of this town, is, it's money, it's time, same thing, power. So wh what are the things that I'm willing to cut out to let other people in? What are the things that I'm willing to not do more of so that I can do more of this? It, it, it was very convicting for me because to, to the degree that we are like Boaz, where we know where we come from, where we know our background, our lineage, to that degree will we love and serve those whom the world excludes, be they rich or poor. You can exclude anybody, as we've learned in our culture. Be they, be they Christian or non-Christian, insider or outsider. That's the first application point. Secondly, last one, last application point. Go back to Ruth's background, 
right? Remember, she worshipped the gods of Moab. But in verse 16, as we read, this beautiful phrase where she says, I don't want those gods anymore. I don't want just to be with them anymore. I want to be with your people, right? I want your God to be my God. It, what's hard is you can't see this in the, in the English, but if you look at the Hebrew, she moves from an impersonal uh, statement of, of, of God in, in the Hebrew to a personal uh, understanding and statement of God, saying Yahweh. She starts off not saying Yahweh, which is the personal name of God, but moves on and finally gets there. In other words, she moves from just knowing about God to actually knowing him personally. You can only use this name if you own it yourself. And that means then, and people don't talk about this enough, Ruth converts. She converts because she takes on the personal name of God, which makes me ask, wait a second, how much because of her conversion was, was Ruth trying to convert her? Because all we know about this, about, sorry, sorry, was Naomi trying to convert Ruth? Because this is what we know about Naomi, is she was saying to Ruth, go back to your gods. So at first you go, oh, I guess, no, she wasn't trying to convert uh, Ruth, but, but think about it. Why was she saying that? Naomi was saying that because, Naomi was saying that, sorry, Naomi was saying that because she knew if Ruth chose the path to stay with her, her life would be harder. She knew that, I mean, it, it, was in Naomi, it was in Naomi's best interest to have Ruth stay with her because she's an older woman. She could have somebody else, you know, help pick food for her and serve her and help her. She didn't want to go to Israel alone. But what she does is she releases Ruth with great cost to herself to love her. And that's what's so fascinating is Ruth must have seen that. Ruth must have seen Naomi, uh, Naomi letting her off. And because of that, because of the love that he sees from her, it was at that moment that she converged and said, I want to know your God. It was at that moment that she said, you know what? Even though as a non-believer, I'm, you're, I'm benefiting from how you know, Naomi could have done things differently. But it was in that moment that Ruth said, you know what? I want to know your God. I found Christianity, and I, and I say this to all of us, Christianity becomes the most credible to non-Christians when Christians inexplicably, to no benefit for themselves, serves other people and is hospitable to them. It's when we tell truth in an area of our work that we, when, we, when we're truthful when, and other people see it, that it's going to cost you by being truthful. It's when you um, deal with integrity and loyalty, even if it means you don't get ahead. It's when you're hospitable in this town, you bring people into your home when it, that's costly. It takes time and effort. It's when uh, Christians forgive when most people normally would probably keep the grudge. It's when, we're re when, when we repent and apologize and say, I was wrong, and we own what we did wrong when most people would deflect and, and play the victim. It's in those spaces where I've seen people most say, what's going on there? I want, I want to know more about your God. I want, to, I want to know what makes you tick. Now, let me caveat, that it doesn't always, you know, happen that way. And you can't set out to do it hoping that that would happen. That's the very thing that, no, you know, Noemi, it just says, I'm going to serve you and love you just for the sake of doing it. But if we're going to be a people like Jesus, we must act like her and treat everybody in process 
by accepting and embracing and loving them. And this is where I think evangelism has gotten a dirty, it's become a dirty word in our culture, but not just in our culture, in our church, because we think it just means uh, arguing with people. But no offense, you can't argue anybody into the kingdom of heaven. So evangelism then is, is just giving people the good news, and good news, the best way to get good news is to experience grace, and the best way to experience grace is to feel it being offered to you. And the best way you can feel being offered to you is you can get that from God, but you can get it from each other. And the best way to do that is, is you, you will only do that to the degree that you have felt it yourself. Please, friends, don't just tell. Show. 90% of evangelism is, is our actions. 10% might be words. And when we love people deeply regarding them, regardless of what they believe, what, whether they have gods or no gods at all, that's the most credible thing that we could possibly do. Christianity is not this, hey, you disagree with me? I want to tell you all about it. Christianity is, my God served me and loved me, and now that he's at the core of who I am, I want to serve and love you regardless of what happens next. Where are we doing that in our lives? Do we do that in our lives? Have we owned that? Because if we don't, there's only two possibilities. Either we don't really believe it, or if we do believe it, we've allowed some idol, something else to become more important to us in our everyday lives. Start with Ruth and who Ruth points to, the ultimate outsider who made us insiders. And let that transform us into a motivating principle of our hearts. Where we can be a community that's not afraid of those who believe different from us. We don't cut them out, we embrace, we love, and serve. That's what the story of Ruth, and that's why Jesus put him, put her in his genealogy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is, this is amazing news. There's so much here that we can, the fact that you put each one of these names, Boaz, Ruth, you're, putting, you're, you're telling us aspects of who you are. And as we sit here at, at, at the advent of Advent, pre-Advent, I pray that we would wait with expectation on uh, this truth. I pray that we would not um, be afraid to speak what we believe, but we would do it through, through our entire lives. Father, we're busy, we're tired, we get, coming out of this pandemic, just meeting up with other people just feels so much more tiring. We're, we've lost the muscle memory. I pray that we would, as Julius said earlier, there, there are so many images of God here. I pray that we would be motivated out into the world to love and serve, and that can only happen on a supernatural level without burning out that we ultimately feel that ourselves when that moves us. Move our hearts, Father. Let us drink deeply. Let us be able to let these motivating principles not just be in our head, but, but be the basis by which we love and live and situate ourselves there. It's, 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 this, is, this is it, Father. We praise things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.